Good morning. A little sparsely populated this morning, but we all know that where two or three are gathered in the name of the Lord, the Lord is present. Let's do a couple of announcements. We got two families vacation. Right. Uh, yeah. Offenbeckers, are they are they on vacation or who was the other family besides uh And the stiffs. Oh, okay. That's right. All right. Pray for their uh, safe return and that they enjoy themselves while they're away. Uh, offering envelopes, usual thing. Andrea is still our contact number and doing a fine job, I might add. Uh, days of praise booklets. We have plenty of those. Please avail yourself. Uh, as you've noticed, the portico is progressing. So we give praise, honor, and glory to God for that. Uh, our video series continues tonight. Is that still on? We have, uh, and are we having communion service today? Is that the feeling of the congregation that we have communion and then forego evening service tonight? What's the question? The question is that, that uh, shall we have communion service directly after regular service and then forego the evening service tonight? All in favor? Yeah. Do why, I have? Why don't we uh, have communion next Sunday and put it on the prayer chain or whatever that we're going to go back to having communion on a regular basis on the first Sunday of every month so people know what to plan for. So that text was sent out a couple of oh, months ago. Yeah, oh, we yeah. sent that out a while ago when okay. we started to get back into this routine. Okay. Okay. We forgot to send it out this week yeah. again, but we've sent it out at least once, but maybe yeah. twice. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if because of the erratic schedules, maybe maybe with winter coming on we'll have a more regular group, you know, here or whatever, but um, I just wonder if we're going to have very many here to have communion service this morning, but we can. Well, let, let, me ask, let me ask this question. How many that are here now will be here for communion service? Well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody that's here will stay for communion service. Okay, so we're all in agreement that we will have communion directly after service and then forego tonight's service and then pick up again next week. Very well. Okay.
And as, and as far as normal goes, if I may humbly submit, there is no normal in this church. <laughs> I mean, I would hope that you folks agree with that. But, but uh, uh, <laughs> okay, uh, did, I, did I miss anything? Uh, Terry, was a message brought up about your boss's husband? Uh, in prayer service, wasn't it? But but not uh, yeah, today. He had, um, they were on a religious retreat, and he he had double pneumonia in Tennessee and passed down there. How was she holding up? Um, she was down there by herself. Um, she still has got And her and what's her name? Sharon LaFrance. Sharon LaFrance. I think that that's something that we should. Uh, bear on ourselves to uh, keep her in prayer. And Pastor Chris at the Western Church, the senior pastor is in LaPierre with Calder. We are in strange times, interesting times. So pray for, uh, for strength and fortitude that uh, we continue on in the faith. Any other uh, Information or something I might have missed. All right, then our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Second Peter, chapter two, verse four through sixteen. You'll find that in your pew Bible, page eighteen ninety-five. <laughs>
Would you stand with us, please, as we begin our service with opening prayer? Adam, may I prevail upon you to sure. lead us? Holy Father, we thank you for the ability to assemble. We thank you for your mercies, your love, your kindness. Uh, we thank you for watching over us and your continued blessing. Pray that today we hear the word. May the Spirit be speaking through the pastor. Uh, may our hearts be open to receive that word. Yeah. And may it be a benefit to us and remember throughout the week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please remain standing. Will you take your red hymnals and turn to number 76? 76, 76 in the brown, oh, red, excuse me, red hymnal. Would that be the red one? That would be the red one and not the brown.
favorite hymn this morning? Naomi, you had one last week. Do you remember what it was? It's a no. Hannah. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. <coughs> What's the number, Pam? 493. In the brown. <coughs> it opened right up. 493 in the brown. Do you have a reason for it this morning? <coughs> story behind this, you should look it up. It's, there's actually more to the story than I knew that I found out this week, even past him watching him, his daughter's <coughs> dying and his wife saved. There was more that happened. There was catastrophe in his life. Much more.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 19, verse 30 through 38, page 27 in your pew Bible. Genesis chapter 19, verses 30, starting at verse 30 to 38. Lot and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zor. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then, <coughs> and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night, they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got the, their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger daughter went in to sleep and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant with, by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son. She named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. I would ask that the Lord bless the reading of his word and bless it to your hearts. Amen. Will you take your brown hymnal this time and turn to number 482 or 82 in the brown?
Mm, that's okay. Our text is found in Genesis 19, verses 30 and following. Last Lord's Day, we analyzed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the cities of the plain south of the Dead Sea. Lot, Abram's nephew, lived in Sodom, but God was merciful to him and rescued him from the city before the blazing conflagration rained from Sodom and destroyed it. Lot was not able to convince his sons-in-law, pledged to marry his daughters. He couldn't convince them to flee the city. They thought he was joking. Even Lot and his wife and his two daughters had to be taken by the hand and led out of the city because, the scripture says, they hesitated. Hesitated to leave. And when past the city limits, Lot bargained with the destroying angels to run to Zor instead of retreating into the mountains where it would have been the safest place to go. Well, God did rain down burning sulfur on those cities of the plains. And guess what? Archaeologists have located the two main cities. And the report says every home we excavated contained evidence of a terrible fire. God's word is true. Science merely confirms what the Bible says. It doesn't destroy what the Bible says. We picked out four sobering lessons from this study. Number one, our testimony to our unsaved relatives and friends is only credible if our lives support it. Lot could not convince his sons-in-law that judgment was coming. Secondly, and this is why, God's judgment reads like a joke. To unbelievers who sin continually, seemingly with no repercussions. That was Lot's sons-in-law. Hey, we've been living in this town for a long time. And now you say it's going to be destroyed by God. And you must be joking. Thirdly, when judgment does come, there is no recourse in delay, but only in hasty compliance with God's directives. Get out. Get out now. Don't even go back to your house for any trying to obtain your wealth or your clothing or anything like that. Just hit the bricks and get out of here. By the way, I just thought of this. That same directive is given, I think, in Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about the coming of himself again at the end of the age, and he instructs us, don't go back to your house. If you're out in the field, don't go back. If you're up on your rooftop, don't even go down inside the house to gather your belongings. Just get out. That's how fast and how forceful the judgment will be. 
And if you're trying to hang on to what you got in this world, you're missing the whole point of judgment. And then lastly, we learn that today, the word today, is all you have and all I have to repent and flee from God's wrath to come. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. You just have today. And many people have sadly discovered that. They keep putting off, putting off, putting off. Oh, someday, sometime, I'll get around to it. They never get around to it, but death gets around to them. And they find that they are not masters of their own destiny. Well, today's study takes a critical look at Lot's legacy. And as we come to the word, let's ask for God's enablement. Lord, we thank you for these truths in the scripture. They're sobering and they're scary at times. That's okay. If we need a wake-up call, we need a wake-up call. But also, I, I am thankful, Lord, that you tell it like it is. Some of these subjects, and this is one of them, when we're dealing with Lot's daughters and the things that they comprised in their own heads, uh, we are ashamed even to think about it. But Lord, you put it in the scripture to, to be a warning to us that how we act, what we think, what we do is very, very important. And I pray, Lord, that it will help us to understand that we have a responsibility to live godly lives in this cruel and wicked world, not to be a part of the cruelty and the wickedness of the world, but to live holy lives that would be a rebuke to those that so indulge themselves in wickedness and refuse to even give the concept or accept the concept that judgment is coming, it's impending. I pray that you'll help us to relate that to our friends and relatives because when it comes, it's too late to get religion, as they say. We pray you'll bless the teaching of your word. Honor Jesus, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. We're in Genesis 19. We're looking at Lot's legacy. His legacy. We're all going to have a legacy, right? We're all going to leave something behind. What will it be? As the story opens, we find Lot and his daughters alone as cave dwellers. Here's a picture of a man who started out well and he ended up debased. You recall that the land of Canaan, with its vast resources, was never promised by God to Lot but to his uncle Abraham. But Lot tagged along when Abraham and Sarah left Ur of the Chaldees. And both men became very, very wealthy. Their wealth being primarily contained in livestock. But you remember the account. The grazing land could not support both Lot's and Abraham's vast herds and flocks. You know, that, that's just a truism. Pasture land can only support so much livestock before it can't do it anymore. Because they eat it all down. And there's nothing there to sustain. 
So graciously, Abraham gave Lot first pick of the land, and we read, So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan. That tells you something right there about Mr. Lot. Oh, you're giving me first pick. Okay, I'll just take the whole plain of the Jordan. Well, what's the plain of the Jordan? It's where the Jordan River runs through. What happens when a river runs through a plain? It's the rich, fertile ground area that was being chosen by Lot. He looked at that. Wow, I'm never going to have to drill a well. Remember Abraham drilling wells and Jacob had a well. Lot says, I won't have to drill any well. I got a river on my property. The scripture says he set out towards the east. And we read, the two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tent near Sodom. Genesis 13, verse 11 and 12. But I got to tell you that near Sodom soon became in Sodom. And in Sodom turned into becoming part of Sodom's upper echelon. When Lot was appointed a judge in the courts, adjudicating the everyday issues which arise between sinners who have disputes and controversies. Say, how do you know that? Well, if you look at where he set up shop. So Mr. Tagalong nephew, Lot, was advanced to a massive landowner and a wealthy rancher to a position in the city gate, that's it, where the judicial parliament settled everyday squabbles and crimes that plague any large city. The court was in the gate area. So as we analyze his life to this point, we might be tempted to say, wow, Lot has made it. He's made it. Wife, two beautiful daughters, a homestead stretched over acres and acres of prime real estate, servants galore, money in the bank, a position of prestige and importance in the community, even favor with God who rescued him not once but twice when things went sour. And yes, he did have some sour moments. His departure from Uncle Abraham that only others could rescue him from. The capture of the Federation of the Kings, you remember? Abraham had to go down and rescue him. What was he doing in Sodom? He was witnessing daily the immorality and sin of the Sodomites. All of which was a constant vexation to his soul, the scripture says. Well, vexation or not, he, <laughs> he stayed there. But these things notwithstanding, life for Lot advanced upward. He could sing with Frank Sinatra. Yeah, regrets I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. 
I planned each chartered course, each careful step along the way. Oh, and more, much more than that, I did it my way. That's Lot. That's Lot. But hidden from human observation was the invisible hand of God, which explains to all of us the true reality. King Solomon in his wisdom says, To man belongs the plans of his heart. But from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. All a man's ways seem innocent to him. But motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. The Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for the day of disaster. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. All of that from Proverbs 16, first nine verses. And Job makes it clear that such outcome of plans applies to believers as well. Here was his testimony, Job's testimony. My days have passed. My plans are shattered. And so are the desires of my heart. Job 17, verse 11. He goes on to conclude. If the only home I hope for is the grave, if I spread out my bed in darkness, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of death? Will we descend together into the dust? Job 17, verse 13 and following. You can hear the despair in Job's words. He's wrestling with this. What's going to happen to me when I die? We ought to all ask that question. What's going to happen to me? Solomon reminds us, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. What a man desires is unfailing love. Better to be poor than a liar. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And then one rests content and untouched by trouble. Proverbs 19, 21 and following. Why is that so? David answers, I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. And on that very day, their plans come to nothing. Boy, what a statement. 
You know planners, don't you? And shakers in our world. They're everywhere. Boy, they got this plan. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. They're going to make their bank account run into the millions of dollars. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. And on that very day, their plans come to nothing. Zero. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the seas and everything in them. The Lord remains faithful forever. Even when you die, if you know him. That's Psalm 146, verse 2 and following. Now Lot had been greatly blessed by God. There's no doubt about that. Just his association with Abraham, the friend of God, as he was called, netted Lot much favor. Even now, how is it that Lot has survived God's wrath and the terrible incineration of Sodom and the cities of the plain? Verse 29. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, we read, He remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Whoa, did you catch that? When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Lot? No, he remembered Abraham. Faithful Abraham. And he brought Lot, the nephew, out of the catastrophe. Because why? He remembered Abraham. That's why. Abraham is Mr. Faithful. And now we read, obviously, months later about Lot. He and his daughters lived in a cave. What? (laughs) He and his daughters lived in a cave. This is what it has come to. Lot argued with the destroying angels to flee to Zor because, oh, it was just a little city in the suburbs of Sodom, so what harm would it for me me to go there? But verse 30 tells us that he and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zor. So he went there, and then he found out, hmm, I don't think this is a good place to stay. He lost all of his livestock in the fire. His homestead was burned. His wealth gone up in smoke, literally. And we find him living in a cave like a wild animal. And that's not all. He also went from poverty to debauchery. How low, here's a good question, how low can a righteous man sink? Well, this account before us tells us pretty low indeed.
Verse 31 and following, one day the oldest daughter said to the younger, Our father's old, and there's no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom in all the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it, and when she lay with him and when she got up, the next day the older daughter said to the younger, I did that last night, it's your turn tonight, and you know what the account says. And the scripture says again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. Genesis nineteen thirty one and following. This is a shocking account of how far we can fall when we let our spiritual guard down. Now to Lot's credit, he is somewhat a victim in all of this. I say somewhat, because with both the older and the younger daughters, they plied Lot through wine to get him so drunk that we are told he was not aware of it when she, the older, lay down or got up. And the same observation is made about the younger daughter, verse 35. He was not aware we would say he was drunk as a skunk. And for that reason, he was practically in a comatose state. Here's the question. Does this exonerate him? Can we say with any kind of credibility that because he didn't know what his two daughters were doing, that he was not to blame for his conduct? Let me answer with another question. When a drunk driver plows into a group of people standing on the corner waiting for the bus and he kills two or three of them, is he culpable? Or do the legal authorities say, well, I think we'll have to let him go because after all, he was drunk at the time. He didn't know what he was doing. No way is that going to happen. You know it. I know it. Instead, the authorities will arrest the drunk man and charge him with vehicular homicide, which, by the way, is a two- to four-year offense. Such offenders are not exonerated because, in the end, they drank the liquor or wine that made them drunk. No one poured it down their throats. This was Lot, true. We are categorically told that with both his older daughter and the youngest daughter, he had no knowledge of what was happening, but why didn't he know? Because he was drunk. Okay, how did he become drunk? By failing to put limits on what he was drinking. And he became inebriated. Sometime I'm out in one of the restaurants in Lapeer at night eating a late supper. Because I was so busy during the rest of the day that I didn't get around to it. 
And they have a, re- a waitress in those restaurants roaming the hallways with a carafe full of uh, coffee. And they come by and they top off your cup and then they move to the next table and top it off. I'm thinking, man, it's late at night. I'm getting a lot of caffeine here. So so what am I going to do? I put my hand over the coffee cup when I saw the waitress coming. She got the message. No more coffee for you. I had a responsibility to say no, no more. Same with Lot. He was responsible. Being bombed out of his mind was the result of his intemperance. And what should we say about Lot's two daughters? What was their motive? Well, I think we can rule out sexual perversion. I think we can rule out sexual pleasure because they tell us what their motive was. Verse 32, let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and motive. Preserve our family line through our father. In other words, they wanted a progenitor. They wanted a male child who would keep the family name of Lot ongoing. Boy, I'll tell you, back in this day and age, family ties were very, very important. They're even that way to us most of the time. As is evident by search engines such as Ancestry.com. What are people doing on Ancestry.com? They're interested in their roots. That's what they're doing. They're interested in their future too, but there was no future for Lot's family. Yes, he had two daughters, but in their own words, our father's old. There's no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom in all of the earth. Motive? They wanted to keep the family seed ongoing. Well, okay, where are all the available bachelors? They're all incinerated in the blaze that scorched the plain. Where are their suitors? Those sons-in-law pledged to marry them. Remember that? They're lost in the ashes. So the daughters may not be expressing some kind of melodrama here. Their plight was real. Their dilemma was urgent. They thought they had to do something. With that said, though, they were very, very sinful in what they did. We know this not only because they violated God's rules for sexuality which the scripture says we're not to have sexual relationships with anyone that's a close relative or with a daughter or with anyone of that nature. This is wickedness, Leviticus 18, verse 17 says. But also because God cursed their offspring 
He cursed their offspring. Did you know that? Verse 36, and following, so both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Genesis 19, verse 36 and following. Oh, horrors. The Moabites and the Ammonites became the avowed enemies of the descendants of Abraham. Did you know that? It was Balak, king of Moab, who hired Balaam the prophet to curse Israel as they came out of their sojourn. Remember that whole incident. In the days of the judges, we are told, the Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. And Israel was in great distress. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the enemies of Abraham's descendants. This is the consequences to self-fixes sometimes. What is the aftermath of Lot's life? Well, a number of things. Number one, difficult lessons are experienced in the school of hard knocks which could be avoided if we would heed God's word. Ephesians 5 verse 3 says, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Well, that's pretty clear. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So live as children of light. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedience do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Ephesians 5, verse 3 and following. Now, if we just read, if we just read, no immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, why then did Lot settle in Sin City? Peter tells us that Sodom and the lifestyle it practiced was a constant irritation to Lot. Let me read it for you. Lot, writes Peter, a righteous man was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men for... That righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. 2 Peter 2, 
verse 7 and 8. Three times in those two verses, Peter calls Lot a righteous man. A righteous man. A righteous man. So what's he doing living in Sodom? Lot certainly knew that the corruption of Sodom and Gomorrah was no place to live, was no place to raise a family, but he did it anyway. God's judgment had fallen on humanity in the days of Noah for the same sins. Certainly, this could not have escaped Lot's recollection. But here he is. Why then would Lot locate in such a wicked, wicked environment? Whatever his reasons. Oh, he liked the city lights, the cultural center, opportunities for education, advancement compared to living on a farm, whatever. Lot made poor choices, and make no mistake about it, he did choose to live in these dens of iniquity. Peter tells us that Lot was actually distressed and tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. What law was being broken on a daily basis? Well, it was God's moral law, which defines everything from business dealings to sexuality to parenting to developing values to live by and on and on. David put it this way, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, verse 11. Eliphaz gave Job good counsel when he said, Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth. Lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir, to the rocks in the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold. The choice is silver for you. Surely then you will find a light in the Almighty and will lift up your face to God. You will pray to Him and He will hear you. And you will fulfill your vows. What you decide on will be done. And light will shine on your ways when men are brought low and you say, lift them up. Then he will save the downcast. He will deliver even one who is not innocent. Job 22 verse 21 and following. Lot was responsible for bringing upon himself much of the pain and anguish he experienced because he refused to listen and to heed God's directives. Instead of standing opposed to the immorality of his day, he caved into it. Probably rationalize it some way. We do the same thing. Sometimes we're in places we shouldn't go. We're hanging around with people we shouldn't be hanging around with. And we say, well, I just want to be a good witness. Yeah, right. 
what you're witnessing is a compromise of your faith. And the world catches that. And that's why they call us hypocrites. Secondly, the immoral behavior of Lot's daughters was unwittingly taught to them, get it now, unwittingly taught to them by their father, Lot. Whoa, what? How so? Remember, when the Sodomites stormed Lot's house to get their hands on Lot's house guests, the two angels, to abuse them sexually, what was Lot's solution? Let me read it for you. Verse 8. Look, says Lot, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. I I can hardly read this and believe it. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. What is wrong with this guy? The protection of his roof? Really? What about his flesh and blood daughters? Didn't they deserve the same protection? What's he doing? Well, he's trying appeasement as though such would work. It never works. Haven't we learned that historically? Political correctness is the coward's way out. It only incites men to be all the more aggressive and hard-headed about the evil that they plan to do. Because you caved and they saw you cave. We see that in the text. The Sodomites said to Lot, Get out of the way. We'll treat you worse than them. Verse 9. Peasement. Didn't work. Here's my point. Lot's daughters learned that night that sexual purity was of little consequence to dad. He was willing to offer them as the sacrificial lamb to wicked men so long as he could keep his house guests safe. In other words, as long as the end justified the means, Lot seemed to be okay with it. So in the cave, living alone now, without husbands to preserve the family line, Committing incest with dad seemed just as justified as Lot offering his daughters to sexual abuse by the Sodomites. Lot failed his daughters in this, and his sin came back to haunt him and his descendants for generations. We teach our children and those under our care not only to be listening to our words, but we teach them by our actions. For the most part, the axiom is true, which says, actions speak louder than words, right? Fathers in particular have an obligation here because as 
head of the house, we are instructed, fathers, I'm reading scripture, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in, his, in the training and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6 verse 4. And the Colossians text tells us why. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Okay, I believe Lot's daughters were exasperated with Lot's actions, embittered and discouraged. And so they disrespected him by getting him drunk and committing incest with him. He had a hand in all of this, though unintentionally. His behavior had brought them to this very place. And then thirdly, no matter how low a person goes on the ladder of degradation, there is always one rung lower to which we can sink. If you had to choose between the sin of homosexuality and the sin of incest, as to which was the more reprehensible to God, which would you choose? That's a hard question. The city of Corinth was the New Testament equivalent of Sodom in the Old Testament. Because any and every sexual sin was rampant in the urban surrounds of Corinth. The city contained a temple built to and in honor of Aphrodite, goddess of love. William Barclay, a theologian, writes in his commentary, she, Corinth, had a reputation for commercial prosperity, but she was also a byword for evil living. The very word Corinthiazene, that is, to live like a Corinthian had become a part of the Greek language and meant to live with drunken and immoral debauchery. Alien, the late Greek writer, tells us that if ever a Corinthian was shown upon the stage, like in a Greek play, he was always shown drunk. The very name Corinth was synonymous with debauchery. And there was one source of evil in the city which was known all over the civilized world. Above the isthmus, towards the hill of Acropolis, and on it stood the great temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. To that temple, there were attached 1,000 priestesses who were sacred prostitutes, And in the evening they descended from the Acropolis and plied their trade upon the streets of Corinth. In addition to these cruder sins, there flourished far more recondite vices, which had come in with the traitors of the sailors from the ends of the earth, until Corinth became not only a synonym for wealth and luxury, drunkenness and debauchery, but a synonym for for all that was filth. End quote from William Barclay. 
very true analysis. I think we have some sin cities in Lapeer, or not in Lapeer, but in the United States. Las Vegas. The church Paul established there at Corinth had to struggle with this kind of whole-scale abandonment to immorality. And they didn't always make wise choices. So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul made this observation. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind, of a kind, that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you're proud of it. Wow. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of the fellowship that man that did this? And even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on them who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. 1 Corinthians 5, the first six verses. I see incest is a step lower than homosexuality. And Paul's saying it doesn't even occur among the pagans. That's a general observation. Finally, I want you to learn that there's mercy in God's Warnings when they're heated. Despite Lot's hesitancy to leave Sodom, regardless of the fact that his testimony was pitiful when he spoke to his sons-in-law, the Bible tells us that the reason the angel warriors continued to urge Lot to leave and then in the end actually grabbed his hands and pulled him out of the city to safety was, verse 16, for the Lord was merciful to them. Let me read that again. The Lord was merciful to them. You know, mercy is not earned. It's not earned. It's given. It has nothing to do with being a deserving person. It's not based on color or creed or good works. It is totally 100% grace. Yes, it is extended to those who heed God's warnings, but the ability to obey is of the Holy Spirit. The scripture says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Same was true for the Corinthians that God saved. As noted, their lives were steeped in idolatry, cult prostitutes, homosexuality, drunkenness, you name it, they had it all. And Paul says of the Corinthians, that is what some of you were. I'm reading scripture. 
That is what some of you were. So there's no denial here. But, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. There was the were, that is what some of you were, and then there's the now. And we don't live in the past, praise God. We're forgiven for the past. We live in the now. Under the blood and forgiveness of Christ. Whatever your sin, however deep you are entrenched in it, there's a way out. There is promised forgiveness from God and there's promised restoration from God. So the writer of Hebrews says, let us then... Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4 verse 16. You've got to go to the right place and you'll find mercy and you'll receive grace. And that place is at the foot of the cross with the shed blood of Christ. Covering our filth, our sin. Well, these Old Testament saints tell us some things about human nature, don't they? We think we're so good. <laughs> we think we're on the right track. We think we're, yeah, we're okay. And the scripture reveals, no, you're not. You're not okay unless you're bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. One sin will damn you to hell. But you're living in it like a filthy pig. Then what? Your state is really bad. But the grace of God is really wonderful. It's the bright light that God shines upon our darkness and brings us out of the darkness into the glorious light. Christ. What's the cross all about? It's Jesus taking in himself the sins of his people, paying the price of God's judgment for those sins. With the result, if I have faith in Christ that he did that for me, then my sins have been paid for. And I don't have to Pay for them. I just have to be appreciative and live my life in such a way that shows thankfulness and gratitude for such a great Savior. How can Jesus pay for my sins? Because the scripture says he knew no sin. He is perfect and was perfect. So he can take upon himself the sins of his people. He can become dirty and filthy and pay for those sins in his perfection that we cannot. We praise the Lord for that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We learned some things about ourselves today. They're not very pleasant. We also learned some things about your grace, and that is very pleasant. It's wonderful to know that you don't leave us in our state if we are willing to look 
at the person of Jesus as our Savior. If we are moved by your Spirit to trust him as our substitute, our stand-in, so he can go and deal with our sins on our behalf. We're so thankful for that. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your cross. The Lord's table, which we celebrate, remembers your cross. The bread, your broken body, the cup, your shed blood, the torture of that, the death of that, the victory of that. You didn't stay on a cross. They put you in a grave. You didn't stay in the grave. You were resurrected unto life. Those are the things that you promised to us. We thank you for. Please bless us each one for being here today. In Christ's holy name we ask with thanksgiving. Amen. Okay, now if I remember right, we're going to do communion right now. Is this this correct? We'll take a 10-minute break and come back when you hear the music. But let's sing 568 in Trinity as we we dismiss from 568 in the Red Hymnal. Will you stand with me when you find it in? Well
break. Come back when you hear the music. <laughs>